Well, it is the most wonderful time of the year. As the song says, the birthday of Jesus Christ is fast approaching. And have you noticed people are really gearing up to celebrate the birthday of Jesus Christ? Did you get to see any of those clips from uh, the shopping madness on Black Friday? Did you see any of those clips? I saw this late night show where they showed three video clips back to back. The first was of um, the Occupy Wall Street protesters being wrestled to the ground. Next clip was rioters in Greece in the streets, violent rioters uh, throwing rocks and such. And then the third clip was in a mall on Black Friday, you know, people wrestling each other to the ground and getting mad and angry, and it's like a mob scene there. And it was eerily similar how each of these three clips looked, and kind of sobering too, you know, when you think about how many people think about Christmas. And I just like to say, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, let's keep him front and center this Christmas season in our celebrations. It's his birthday. So let's, let's do that. And so towards that end, we're in a new series beginning this weekend called Enter God, Christmas Presents. And we're going to be exploring together the great invasion of God to our planet, the plan that brought God to earth just over 2,000 years ago on that very first Christmas. And this morning, I'm praying that the Lord will lift us up to a very high place, to the top of the mountain peak, where we can see the, the, the panorama of the grand plan of God. And let me pray for us in that regard. Lord, we need to see this. So, Lord, lift us up to a high place. Give us your vantage point. And, Lord, enlighten us. Open the eyes of our understanding to see the grand plan of the ages and what is in your heart and what motivates you to do what you do. Give us this grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And uh, you can take the study outline out of your worship folder so you can follow along with us. You know, Bible scholars tell us that there are certain uh, themes, key themes, or sometimes referred to as trajectories in the Bible that spanned, span the entire Bible and are woven through the storyline of Scripture like golden threads. And these themes reveal what God is all about and what's in His heart and what motivates Him to do what He, what he does. For example, you can take the theme of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, and you can trace that theme from Genesis all the way through the book of Revelation. And you'll see a sovereign king seeking to establish his gracious rule and reign in a place among a people. Or you can take the theme of the life of God and trace it from the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, back in the book of Genesis, all the way through to the appearance of the tree of life again in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 and 22. Woven throughout all of scriptures. There's the kingdom of God, the life of God, the bride of God, the dwelling place of God, the redemptive plan of God, the family of God. All of these are huge, overarching themes that explain why God does what he does in this world and throughout human history. But I have to say, in my own quest to discover the one storyline that's behind or underneath all the other storylines, to discover the overarching theme that unifies all the other themes, I can't shake the conviction that one theme, one purpose rises above all the others and fully explains all the others. I think a case could be made, a strong case, 
that the primary plot line of the Bible is the glory of God. The glory of God. The planned and progressive unfolding of God's magnificence throughout all of creation and throughout all of human history. And if I'm right, if that is the case, if the glory of God is the prevailing and dominant theme of the Bible and of the grand story, then I think we could rightly say also that it's also the deepest purpose in God's heart that motivates all of his plans and all of his activities, his desire to reveal his glory and put it on display for all to see. This notion that God's glory is the ultimate purpose of everything is supported by Scripture all throughout the Bible, including one of my favorites. It's on your outline there, Romans eleven thirty six. Say it with me if you would. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. That just kind of sums it up, doesn't it? All things for His glory. All things. All things for the glory of of God. I believe that explains the purpose of human history. I believe it explains why God created, why there are people, why we're here. I think it's the purpose of the Grand Canyon and beautiful sunsets. I think it's the purpose of DNA and photosynthesis and marriage and music and beautiful art and romance and delicious food and diverse languages. All things for the glory of God. All things. And that being the case, I believe the glory of God is also the ultimate purpose for why God allows things that are difficult and hard to understand. I believe it's what allows cancer to exist and miscarriages and murder and evil and abuse and tsunamis and natural disasters and the Holocaust and 9-11. It's why he doesn't just snuff out Satan when he could. It's why he created heaven and why he created hell. All things. For his glory. All things are meant to display the multifaceted magnificence of all of his glorious attributes. He designed it that way. And he's the only being in the whole universe who can do that and it be a selfless and loving act towards us. Also, I've come to believe that until a person is awakened to this worldview, this God centered worldview, and embraces it, they will likely live their lives with a low-grade suspicion of God. Wondering what's in his heart, why he does what he does. One of the beauties of this truth, though, is that it tells us that God, the Creator, wants to be known. He wants to be known. In revealing his glory throughout history, he is saying, I want to be known. I want you to know me. I want to put the full range of all of my attributes on display so you can know who I am. Even his name, I am who I am, hints at this deep desire in God to be known. And we believe in the triune God, the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And and we know that they know each other deeply for sure. But deep in their heart is the thirst to be known more broadly. And that's why together they created to be known. We see this theme unfolded throughout the Bible. God the creator presenting his glory to his creation, wanting to be known and loved and worshipped for who he is. And it starts back in the creation account in Genesis. Think about it. 
Adam and Eve in the garden, the garden of Eden. Think about them for a moment. There they were, the crowning achievement of God's creation. And those images of Adam and Eve, and Eve with always with her strategically placed hair, which is probably a good thing. <laughs> they were in the garden, and they were enjoying life, and they were enjoying each other, and they were enjoying God in the lush setting of that beautiful, stunning garden, and life was good, it was really good. And Genesis 3 records that they would take these walks with God, walking around the garden with their Creator, and they would have these conversations with God. Imagine that. They would talk with God and God would share his heart with them and God seemed to revel in being known by his creation. And then what happened? God wanted to reveal something more of himself, so he gave them a test. He wanted them to know that he is a moral being to whom not everything is the same, as Francis Schaeffer used to like to say. To God, there is good and evil, and by divine right, He determines what is good and what is evil. But our ancestors did what? They wanted that right for themselves. And they were deceived into casting off God's authority and living by their own rules and wanting to determine for themselves what is good and what is evil. And so sin entered our race. And by defying God, they pushed God's glory away. And the Bible says in Genesis 3.8 that when God came calling for them after their sin, they actually, it says, hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. They had always enjoyed and communed with God's glory-filled presence, but now it was something to hide from. And ultimately, because they treated God's glory so lightly, they were what? They were banished from the garden. You see, God came to Adam and Eve and he basically said, here's who I am, here's my glory, will you honor me? And they were, they rejected his glory and they were summarily dismissed from the garden and from his presence. And we need to understand that disdain for God's glory cannot exist in the presence of God. Can't. Well, Adam and Eve had children. (laughs) Lots of children. Who had children? Who had children? And this path of descendants continued down that same disastrous road to the point in history where God saw so little interest in people to know Him and to honor Him and glorify Him for who He was that He decided to literally wipe mankind from the face of the earth through a worldwide flood, saving one family, the family of Noah. You see, seeing the Bible through the lens of the glory of God explains an awful lot. God was not through showing himself to humanity. The creator would again risk presenting his glory to mankind years later, this time not in a garden, but on a mountain, on a mountaintop. Now you recall that God chose a special people for himself, the descendants of Abram or Abraham, and they were the Israelites, the children of Israel, the Jews. And you recall that they had been led by Moses out of Egypt by the mighty power of God had crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, and then they found themselves camped out in the desert at the base of a mountain called Mount Sinai in the Sinai Peninsula. In Exodus 19, God told Moses that in three days he was going to show up. God said, I'm going to make an appearance on the top of Mount Sinai and reveal my glory for all of my people to see. And Moses was actually supposed to put a fence up around the base of that mountain, kind of a barricade to prevent people from rushing the mountain and climbing up and being consumed by the glory of God. 
Exodus 19, 16 says this, On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain, a, a glory cloud, and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. And then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. So they're staring up at the glory of God being revealed on this mountain summit. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire and the smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, a furnace, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Later on, God called Moses alone to come up to, on the mountain with him. Imagine Moses' anticipation as he's making his way up the mountain to meet God in the midst of that glory cloud. Exodus 24 records, Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So there they are staring up at this. Moses, their great leader, is up there meeting with God. That should have done it, right? That should have brought them to their knees in worship. Seeing the glory of God in this smoking volcanic mountain peak. Did they do that? Did they fall down and worship God? Listen, it wasn't just a few weeks before those same people got fed up with Moses being gone for so long. And what did they do? They started this big party, this big orgy with everybody getting drunk and having sex and offering sacrifices to an idol, a golden calf made from their own jewelry. It's heartbreaking. God of glory had come and revealed himself once again, and once again his people had trampled on his very glory, treating it as nothing. And Scripture says God was deeply grieved. Thank God for his patience. He didn't give up. His heart was set on his people knowing him and seeing his glory, so he tried again. And this time it would be on the face of a man. Exodus 33 Verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here now, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Moses, it's time to move on. Take these people, two million people strong, and start your journey towards the promised land. In verse 12, Moses replies to God, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. In other words, God, that's easy for you to say. I can hardly get my own family dressed and up and ready to church on time, much less lead two million people to the promised land. I need your help. Verse 14, the Lord replies, Well, my presence will go with you, Moses. My presence, the same word used back in the Garden of Eden. God was saying that he would indeed be with Moses and it would be in, in some kind of presence, some kind of visible form so that Moses would know God was with him. And so in verse 18, Moses said, show it to me. If your presence is going to go with me, show it to me. Show me your glory. I want to see it, this presence that you're promising me. And God says, you want to see my glory? I'll show you my glory, since you asked. But I can't let you see it in full force. The intensity of the light would be too great, too bright. Too much energy would be released. You would just be zapped out of existence in my presence like standing a few yards away from the sun. So in verse 21, God in essence says, look, there's a place near me where I'm going to let you stand and I'm going to pass by you and I'm going to 
put you in a cave and kind of cover you up and I'm going to let a little bit of my afterglow leak your way and that's about as much as you can handle. And that's what he does. And it says in Exodus 34, 29, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. So here again, God was attempting to reveal his glory to his people, this time not in a garden and not on a mountain, but on the face of a man that they knew, Moses. Now, you got to admit, seeing someone's face all lit up with like a radioactive glow, that, that ought to have an effect. I mean, that ought to make an impact. Did it? Did they get it? Did they go, oh, this is the glory of God. Well, the exact opposite actually happened. The people started to whine and complain and told Moses, despite his face, how much better they all had it back in Egypt. And we want to go back to Egypt? I don't know about you, but I think if I were God at that point, I might have just said, that's it. I've had enough of you people. I'm bringing you all up to the top of the mountain and just disintegrating you in my presence. But he didn't. It's amazing. When, he broke, when the people broke camp and moved on, God tried again. This time in the tabernacle. And we've talked about the tabernacle, have, haven't we, in our series on prayer. This portable worship center that accompanied the children of Israel on all of their travels through the wilderness. And whenever the nation would set up camp in a particular place, they would put up this huge tent right in the middle of the camp. It was the place of worship for God's people, and despite how... They had treated God. God chose to dwell right there in their midst again in a visible form that they could see. In Exodus 40, 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, the glory cloud again appearing. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. There's a weightiness to the glory of God. There's a heaviness to it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. So there it was again, the glory of God on display for all of them to see, a pillar of cloud by day, and a blazing column of fire lighting up the camp at night, a constant picture of the presence of God, the manifest presence of God. With that kind of display constantly before their eyes, wouldn't they see it? Wouldn't they glorify God for who he was? Nope. Numbers 11.1 1 tells us that they started to complain again, this time because the food was bad. And then they started in on Moses, grumbling about his leadership style. And finally, God did have enough of it. And he said, this entire whiny generation is going to die off here in the wilderness. You will not get to see the promised land because you have failed to glorify me. Once again, God had said, I, I, I want you to know me. Here's my glory. See it. Savor it. And his people just blew him off. 
But he still was not done trying. After the next generation finally did get into the land of promise, God would try once again. And this time he could say, look, you're in the land now. Won't you see me for who I am? Won't you glorify me? And he gave instructions to build a temple, a permanent worship facility, right there in the land where his glory would dwell once again. And it was King Solomon who eventually got the privilege of building this temple right in the middle of Jerusalem. And when it was completed, 1 Kings 8 tells us that the priests came out of the holy place and a cloud filled the house of the Lord. There it is again. This cloud of dense, the glory of God. And it filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not stand. Again, the weightiness, the heaviness of God's glory. They couldn't stand to minister because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And you would think that this time, this time they would get it. The people of God would get the gloriousness of their God. Did they? Same song, fifth stanza. And this time it's gut-wrenching. You can read about it in Ezekiel 8. God gives his prophet, Ezekiel, a vision of the temple. And Ezekiel in this vision sees the temple, that there's an idol placed right near the entrance of the north gate. And God says to Ezekiel, do you see what they are doing? The utterly detestable things they're doing here, they're driving me out of my own sanctuary. My people. Through their worship of lesser gods. In this vision, he takes Ezekiel inside the temple and Ezekiel is inside and he looks around in this vision and he sees some women over here worshiping the false god Tammuz. And over here he sees 25 men worshiping the sun, the S-U-N, not the S-O-N. And God says to Ezekiel in verse 17, Do you see this, son of man? It is a trivial matter. It's a light thing for the house of Judah to do these detestable things that they are doing. And in chapter 10, God says, I'm not staying. I will not allow my glory to be compromised like this. And in the rest of the chapter, Ezekiel sees the progressive exit of the glory of God. Leaving the temple. It starts to move out from the inner court to the outer court. And then he sees it rising above the temple. And then it's going over the mountains. And then it's gone. And God writes over the temple, Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. And Israel was left without the visible manifestation of the presence of God. Do you see this woven through the storyline of the Bible? God comes to Adam and Eve and says, here's my glory. Won't you honor me for who I am? And they say, no. He comes to the children of Israel and said, won't you see my glory up on that mountain? And they say, no. And he said, well, okay, then I'll reflect my glory on the face of Moses, your leader. And they said, we don't care. He said, well, then see my glory day and night hovering above the tabernacle. And instead of worshiping, they start complaining. And then he said, well, then my glory is going to reside in this temple, in the land, in Solomon's temple. And they said, no, you are not what we want. We want our own kind of gods to worship. This is unbelievable. And at that point, maybe someone would say, well, that's it for mankind. I'm sure God has had enough. He's had his fill of this. He's not going to put himself through this yet again, would he? Yes, he would. Once more. In the garden, on the mountain, on the face of Moses, in the tabernacle, in the temple, and finally several hundred years later, in a human body. 
as John wrote in John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the Word is tabernacled. He tented among us. He contained the glory of God like the tabernacle did. And John wrote, We have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And God said, Once more, once more I will attempt to reveal my glory so my people will see it. And know me for who I am. And honor me and worship me. And this time he manifested his glory in the body of his own son, Jesus Christ. You know, there are many ideas floating around about what Christmas is all about. Many ideas. Some people think it's about shopping. Some people think Christmas is primarily about family or eating. Or giving each other gifts. Or decorating or... Football or having a few days off of work. But I'm here to tell you that the primary meaning and significance of Christmas is that this was God putting His glory on display once again, this time in a human body. The body of Jesus Christ. So in your imagination, see a little baby. See a little baby cradled in His mother's arm, nursing at her breast cooing and gurgling. Yeah, like that. I was hoping that would happen. It's a beautiful thing. Do you remember that even the announcement of the birth of that child was enveloped in the glory of God? Out in the field when the shepherds heard word and it said, the glory of the Lord shone round about them and they were... Sore afraid, the King James says. The glory of the Lord shone round about them. That glory cloud had appeared once again in the announcement of the birth of this child. Do you remember that the angelic choir proclaimed his birth by exclaiming, Glory to God in the highest. That little infant was the very glory of God in human form. Well, he grew up. And as a grown man, one day Jesus took some of his closest friends up on a mountain and showed them something very amazing. You've heard this story. It's in Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, his three closest buddies, led them up on a high mountain. There's a lot of mountains in the Bible. By themselves. And he there was transfigured before them. Curious word. And his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. What is this? His face shone like the sun. Remember Moses? The glory of God on his face. When John wrote, we have seen his glory, I believe he was referring to this moment. He was there. We've seen it. We saw Jesus transfigured into something truly amazing, bright, dazzling, brilliant light emanating from his being, pouring out of his face. We saw him as he really was and is, John was writing. Jesus was manifesting the glory of God once again. I love the way Hebrews puts it, Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his being. Jesus is God in a body. That's what the Bible declares. And Jesus was the glory of God. Jesus was the new and better garden of Eden. Jesus was the new and better mountain and the new and better tabernacle and the new and better temple of God. 
And where once the glory of God shone on Moses' face, the Bible declares that the glory of God is now found in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And think about when he was about to die, about to lay down his life to purchase redemption for us, forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. Here's how he prayed. John 17, 1. Father, glorify your Son so that the Son might glorify you. You see, the cross of Jesus Christ revealed the glory of God in a very unique way. All things for His glory. All things for His glory. But think back now. How was He received? Here is Jesus, the the glory of God, embodied, personified, walking the planet. How was He received? Did people by and large... Melt before him, crumple to the ground in worship? A few did. But isn't it true that most of the people that he met in the end, even those who believe themselves to be the people of God, missed it, missed the glory of God? He came unto his own, and his own received him not. They still didn't get it. They still didn't get it. But I want you to know that one day, everyone will see it. You know that? Everybody's going to see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. Jesus predicted this. Talking about a time yet future in Matthew 24, he said this, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from the heaven. Why? To create a black backdrop for the brilliance of the glory of Jesus Christ. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. One of Jesus' favorite titles for himself. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And everyone will see Jesus Christ embodying the glory of God. And they'll go, oh my. <laughs> Why didn't we see it? Heaven is a picture of the glory of Jesus Christ. Revelation 21.10, He carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Where's that light coming from? What's, its, what's the source of that light? Revelation 21.23, The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus is going to light up the place with the glory that emanates from His very being. Listen. All of us are caught up in a story. A big story. A glory story. The grand story of God. Now, now we each have our own little stories. This is true. And our stories are not unimportant. We do matter. But the danger is in thinking that our little stories are really the big story. That's the danger. And every single one of us need to be awakened to the reality that there is an infinitely bigger God story happening all around us. And we need to connect our story to that story. I love how Louis Giglio puts it in his book, I am not, but I know I am. 
If we don't get these two stories straight, he writes, everything else in our lives will be out of sync. We'll spend our days trying to hijack the story of God and turn it into the story of us. We'll live as though life is our one-act play and history is our story. We will throw every ounce of our energy into the fragmented and fleeting story of us. And in the end, when the last clap is clapped for our tiny tail, our story will fade to black. Connecting our little story with the big story requires a constant choice, he wrote. We can choose to cling to the starring role in the little bitty, itty bitty stories of us, or we can exchange our fleeting moment in the spotlight for a supporting role in the eternally beautiful epic that is the story of God. Think of it as trading up. That's how I think of it. Abandoning the former and embracing the latter will allow our little lives to be filled with the wonder of God as we live for His fame and the unending applause of His name. Joining our small stories to His will give us what we all want most in life anyway, the assurance that our brief moments here on the earth count for something in a story that will never, ever end. It's true, isn't it? It rings true in our spirits, doesn't it? We're part of a grand story and all things are meant for the glory of Jesus Christ to make Him look great, to magnify Him. Have you been awakened to this yet? Have you traded up? I liken it to, um, and this is something you can't manufacture in yourself or in someone else. If I could reach into your chest this morning and flip a switch or turn a dial that would give you that enlightenment, I would. But I can't. It's something the Holy Spirit has to do. It's, it's an awakening. And I, I liken it to what happened in our world about 500 years ago. And I've told this story before, but I love it, so I'm going to tell it again. Um, did you know that people for thousands of years believed that the earth was at the center of the solar system? They looked up in the sky. They saw the movement of the heavenly bodies across the sky. And they said, I know why that is. We're at the center. The earth's at the center. Everything revolves around us and that belief became the prevailing view of humanity and it even made its way into the dogma of the church so like in the statement of faith you know, you had to believe that that we were at the center of all things and everything revolved around us and you believe that or if you you know if you contradicted that it was at the risk of your life there were people who were burnt at the stake as heretics for not believing that along comes this man named copernicus And Copernicus looks at the heavens and the movement of the heavenly bodies and he said, I think there's another explanation that makes more scientific sense. I think that actually we're just one of many bodies that rotate and revolve around the sun, that big ball of light up there. I think that it's not an earth-centered universe. I think it's a sun-centered solar system and everything revolves around the sun. And as he came to this discovery, he realized if I publish this broadly, I'm dead meat. And so he arranged to have his works published posthumously after he died because he realized this is a, this is a paradigm-shattering discovery that will put me and my life in jeopardy. And as I said later on, those who followed his beliefs, many of them did pay with their lives. I believe there's a similar paradigm-shattering experience 
that God wants each and every one of us to have where we realize maybe for the first time or maybe again, you know what? I live in a God-centered universe and I'm in a big story that's centered in Jesus Christ. It's God's story and the hero of the story has already been selected and it's not you. And it's not me. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's at the center of all things. And when you get this, when you get it, it's a game changer. It changes the ball game. It changes how you think about everything. It changes how you think about life, death, hardship, trial, family, church, Christmas, all things for His glory. A Copernican revolution of the soul. Would you join me in praying together? I so want for each of you and for myself to have a Christ-centered, Jesus-filled Christmas celebration. Don't you? I mean, I, most of us want that. We want Jesus Christ to be at the center of our Christmas celebration. We don't want to get distracted by other things and pulled in other directions. But it happens, doesn't it? And so here we are on the front end of December, celebrating the advent of Jesus Christ. And despite that deep desire that many of you have, some of us, your, hearts, your heart is gummed up with other things. <laughs> and maybe you're realizing that today. Maybe you're being pulled in, in, in another direction. or The circumstances of your life are distracting to you and... I so hope and pray that you can have the experience of having those things pulled aside so that you can focus squarely on Jesus Christ. We're going to worship together in just a few moments and some of our prayer partners, as they do, are going to be here to pray with you. And I think it would be just like the Lord, don't you think? It would be just like the Lord to lift some things off of you this morning so that you can celebrate Christmas as it was meant to be celebrated. I think it would be just like the Lord for him to reach into your heart and pull out some things that are distractions to you and and weighing you down. and, and, And so if that's you today, while we're worshiping, I'm going to encourage you to come and let one of these prayer partners pray with you. Who knows what the Lord might want to do to free you up so you can truly celebrate Christmas this season as it was meant to be celebrated. You can come and pray for other needs and decisions as well. We're going to stand and worship together right now. Would you join me in that? Maybe you are not yet a believer in Jesus Christ. And so I'm talking about His glory and, and it's all kind of hazy to you. And may I just challenge you today. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. Come to this world to manifest the glory of God and then to take your sin upon himself and die and pay for it, all of it. And then he rose from the grave three days later which proved that God was satisfied with the sacrifice. 
And if you will turn from your sin and, and turn from your self-effort and self-righteousness and your, your attempts to try to please God on your own, if you'll turn away from all that and just embrace the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, He will save you in an instant. He'll save you from your sin. It's called redemption. It's called justification. It's called a dozen different things and it's beautiful. And the Lord would be so pleased if you would humble yourself turn away from pride and just embrace Jesus as your Savior. And if you do that, let somebody know. (laughs) Tell somebody. Come and tell one of these folks or turn to the person next to you and just say, hey, Jesus, he's the one I'm clinging to today by faith. Amen. So let's worship the Lord. And if you love to receive prayer, come. Let's enjoy the Lord together.